Good morning, everybody. I know you've been greeted a bunch. I'm just going to greet you before Johnny gets here. Um, so we're going to start with the classic, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now we're going to take a trip to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for it is your practice. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, dude. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard gentleness read so not gently before. (laughs) This is the one time in my life that word felt frightening. <laughs> oh, I don't actually want you to be gentle. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, like you've heard from Nate or Heather, so thankful to have you, so thankful you're here. Love to get to know you. Let's begin with just a quick word of prayer, and then we will dive in to the text. Jesus, we ask you to be with us today. Deeply confident of your promise to be with us. But God, it is often hard to notice that you're present. It's often hard to pay attention. We come into this space with so many other things, so much busyness and baggage and hurt and wounds and excitement from other places, and so it's hard to pay attention. And so, Jesus, as we enter in, as we sing your songs, as we come to the table, would we practice paying attention to you? And would we hear again, maybe for the a thousandth time, but would we hear in a new way that your way is freedom? That your burden is light, your yoke is easy, and that you give us rest. So Jesus, help us pay attention to you, help us hear the news of you, and as we leave this place, would we practice the way of freedom and healing? In your name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. So today, if you've been with us for the last so many weeks, uh, you know that we've been in a series called Practicing the Way. And today we are finishing up that series. But before we do, just like a, by way of quick review of what we've done, throughout this time, we have been walking through the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, or the classic passage, as Jonathan told us. But the way that we have been working through these fruit is a bit different than I think we normally talk about them or we normally hear them. Instead of simply understanding them as abstract virtues or qualities of our character, we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit as practices of the Christian life. Practices of the Christian life, ways in which we live in step with the Spirit, because that's actually how this passage begins. It says, live in step with the Spirit, and then Paul begins to outline what the fruit are. So instead of talking about them as some kind of disembodied obligations, or as things that we do because we are supposed to, which is true, but tragically small way to think about it. Instead, we've been trying to talk about these practices as, as these fruit as practices, as ways in which we tend to love, as ways in which that we tend to our own faith, as ways that we cultivate this thing that we're doing with Jesus. These practices are the way we cultivate and tend and practice Love. In fact, this passage that Jonathan began with, or the, that he read in Peter, makes this same statement. It says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Right? These practices, like these fruit of the Spirit, as they're listed in Galatians 5, they actually keep us from being unfruitful. So if we want to tend to our faith, we have these practices. If we want to love, we practice love. If we want to be joyful, we practice joy. If we want to be patient, we practice giving time and space to ourselves and to those around us. And in the practicing of the practices, we find that we cultivate the fruit. And the thing that I have really loved about this series, at least for my own heart, is I feel like it kind of reframes how we often approach the practices. Because it's easy for me to think about the fruit of the Spirit as, as obligations, things I'm supposed to do, things I, that are right to do, but that kind of is all they are to me. Like, these are right things to do, and I don't know what else they are. But throughout this series, what we've seen is the fruit of the Spirit are not disembodied obligations, but they are things we need. Like they are given for the people of Jesus to cultivate their own loves. So they might experience the reality of Jesus and live into the hope that he's extending to the world. A few weeks ago, we talked about it like, like if you were journeying into an unknown territory, like you're going to the Arctic and you've never been before, you have practices that are not just cool, they're not just like good ideas, but they are the actual ways in which you survive the crazy, unknown, mysterious waters that God has led you into. And the same thing is true of the fruit of the Spirit, that they are the practices of survival, the practices of life. They tend to something in our hearts as God is calling us into strange and unknown spaces. They are for us. They're not disembodied or empty or pointless virtues. They are the means and tools of life. Peter also makes the same statement in chapter 2. He says, verse 4, that God has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises. So that through them, you may become partakers or participants of this divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then in verse 10, he says it this way. He says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I love the language of this moment. He's like, practices are how you participate in the divine life. It is how you actually form into Christ-likeness, how you experience the work and the reality of Jesus. Or maybe even to say it more clearly, the practices are how we participate in the healing that God is doing in our lives. They're how we survive, they're how we navigate, they're how we follow Jesus, and it is how we align ourselves with the healing work that God is doing, how we participate in the healing work that God is doing in our lives. Now today we have one last practice to finish up. And I think in some ways it may be the hardest practice to understand, because it comes with the most baggage, at least I think in my own life, and that is the practice of self-control. I think a word like self-control, it just comes with so much unhelpful baggage. Baggage, I think, that it would even, that would even call into question all the other things that we just talked about with these practices. Like we just said that these practices are ways of experiencing healing, and then I think you hear self-control, and it just it, it brings so much baggage. You're like, yeah, but self-control feels different than that. It feels like management. Feels like willpower, like impulse control. And maybe that's good and right, but I don't know how it squares up with what we've just talked about. But if the practices are about participating in healing, I think that changes how we understand what self-control is. This week I had a chance to kind of like work through my sermon with some friends. And one of the people I talked to is a woman named Megan, goes to this community. And she's an amazing dancer. But earlier this year, she had a substantial surgery, and it totally changed the way that she did life. And so we were talking through self-control, and I was like, well, Jesus, like, how, does this, how do you even think about a concept like this as someone who has been a dancer, who has had so much control, and then has to go through this thing that changes the way you think about that? And the thing that she talked about is that this process post the surgery has been about relearning how to do life. And I love that phrase as we think about what it means to live into healing. But the story of the Bible is that we are made in the image of God. That God created us in love as an extension of love to be in relationship with him. And so what that means is that love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, that's actually the grain of the universe. That's the way the world is supposed to work. But as First Peter talks about, or Second Peter talks about, corruption has changed that. Sin has changed that. And the good news of the gospel is that we've been rescued out of whatever that corruption is, but we don't just like enter back into this way of God, understanding how to do life with God. We don't understand what love looks like because we have long habituated practices of corruption and hurt and woundedness. So we have to relearn something. We have to relearn what a way of life looks like with Jesus, what a way of life looks like in community. What does a way of life look like in light of the gospel? 
How do we dance and how do we eat and how do we move and how do we live in light of love? Well, you, you practice. That's how you relearn. You go to your physical therapy. You take a walk when your body does not want to, not because it is the right thing, but because through practicing the practices, you participate in healing. I think fundamentally that is what self-control is. It is the practice of practicing. This is why I think Paul ends his list of the fruit with this one. He's like, here are all of these fruit. This is the way we live into love. This is the way we practice this thing that God has called us into. And then he ends it with self-control. Practice the practices. Now, I think that's hard for us for so many reasons to think about self-control that way, when you think about self-control at all. Because like, we, have, we have our own definition of what self-control is our cultural definition of what self-control is, like our self-help definition of what self-control is. And I think today, like when we think about what self-control is, most of the time we think about management of our impulses. Like when I Googled self-control, because it's always a lot of times when I'm doing a sermon, I'm like, I don't have any ideas. Self-control. <laughs> Tell me what up, internet. And the first thing that came up, this is true, the first thing that came up is a very famous psychology test called the marshmallow test. How many are you familiar with the marshmallow test? Yeah, so the marshmallow test is like, we're going we're gonna to figure out who the good kids are. <laughs> and so you take two kids and you'd put a marshmallow in front of them. And you'd be like, hey, if you don't eat this, if you control your impulses, you can have more marshmallows later. And then they would watch. So one kid, some kids would eat the marshmallow and they wouldn't get marshmallows later. And some kids could hold out, not eat that marshmallow and get marshmallows later. And supposedly, that test was an indicator of success later in life, which is, you know, debatable. <laughs> That's me, a person who has no impulse control. It's debatable. <laughs> right, but it's the first thing that comes up. It's like, oh, what is self-control? Oh, it's the kid's ability not to eat a marshmallow. It's impulse control. It's your ability to, to stuff something. It's your ability to manage something. It's your ability to delay gratification for some kind of future thing, for some future promise, some future outcome. And that's, that's good. I'm not trying to criticize impulse control. But the interesting thing is, if you look at Scripture and the story of the Bible, well, it feels like you, you enter into a paradox. Because the Bible often talks about something totally different than self-control. It talks about losing yourself. Jesus tells his disciples that if you want to be my follower, you have to pick up your cross, for whoever would save his life will lose it. The person who saves his life is the one who loses it. And he's always talking about people who seem to be successful, the ones who are able to control their impulse. He's like, you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I feel like that just leaves us in this interesting paradox. On the one hand, you have like our cultural impulse control, and on the other hand, you have Jesus saying, lose it. But it's only a paradox if we understand self-control as simply impulse control. But if we flip what the fruit of the Spirit are doing 
and understand them through the lens of healing, then I think that we actually start to have a different definition of what self-control is and what self-control looks like in our life. It is not managing myself because healing does not come through impulse management. Recovery rarely comes that way. Instead, self-control, according to Scripture, begins in recognizing that we have no power to control. If you're familiar with the 12 Steps program, that's the first step. To admit that you are powerless to manage or control the circumstances around you, which is, again, it feels so paradoxical. You're like, I'm in this program in order to get control of some addiction. And the very first step, you have no control. The gospel says the same thing. You have no control. You are powerless on your own. Self-control in Scripture begins the same way. You have no power, but it begins to open up space to other realities. Now, not only do you have no power, but you also need to recognize that you have no ability to restore yourself on your own. And as we begin to recognize that on the 12-step program, we start to realize, like, oh, we need help for restoration. Only God can restore. Which leads to the third step on the program, which is, will you turn your life and your will over? The same thing is true in the Scriptures when we talk about what self-control is. It is a recognition that we have no power to control, that we are in need of God for restoration, And then it leaves us with a question, which is, will you surrender your life over to God for him to heal, for him to restore? The biblical model of self-control begins with the recognition that we need God's healing to restore us. So instead of trying to manage, we surrender. That's the strange paradox, that surrender actually leads to freedom. But again, the hard part is that that notion stands so strongly in contrast to the way we think about self-control. Because culturally, self-control comes down to management, the myth of management, which is the belief that we can somehow control our life, that we can manage our life, that we can manage the outcomes of our life if we're just careful. And it's a myth because it never works. We are never actually able to control. I can't control my job. I can't control the world around me. I can't control how friends respond to me. I often can't even control my own body and how it responds to my attempts. This week I was talking to Luke Goodrich about this, and the example that he used was one of the most common cultural places that we try to exert the most amount of control is in like having and raising children. Which, if you've ever met a child, it just challenges your notion of control. (laughs) But even the process of trying to have a kid, I think, is really challenging to our notions of control. Because in my experience, the strange irony of this is that, that oftentimes couples who prepare the hardest and who work the most and who are most planned and even desiring to have children are often the couples who struggle the most. So you think that you've done all the things that you can to control the outcomes of the situation and all that is revealed at the end of it is that you have very little control of what's happening. 
We think we're in control. But Luke's point was, is we think we're in control. And most of the time, what we've done is we've just given control to somebody else or something else or some other pressure or some other story or some other cultural force. We've just actually given control to something else. With children, there's so many cultural pressures that we can give control to. How we're a mother, how we're a father, how we have children, how we've raised those children. We just give over control to so many other things. To control our safety, I can give control of my own life over to my job, my money, my finances. To control my image, actually give control over to vanity. And see, none of it in reality leads to a feeling of control. Mostly, it just leads to shame. I was talking to my friend Megan this week. She said, shame is a bully and self-discipline, which I thought was such a powerful way to talk about it, is because you're trying to like, get some sense of control of your body. You're trying to figure out how to make life work, and then all of a sudden you have this bully in the back of your head that inserts shame, because if it's all about management and control, well, there's so many places for shame that start to permeate your life, whether that's in failure, or that's in comparison, or that's as you, as you don't achieve the things that you were hoping to achieve. And you would think that like, as you experience shame, that would reveal something to us about our attempts to control. The problem is it rarely does. Instead, shame tends to make us double down on our attempts to control. So I can grip it. I'm gonna grip it even harder because if I can grip this and I can manage this and I can, I can produce whatever outcome it is that I'm holding on to, this dream I have or this hope I have or this way of raising children or this way of achieving this thing at work, if I can just grip it as hard as possible, then maybe I can manage it. Just tends to produce more shame. Not only does that affect ourselves, it affects all those around us because shame tends to get reprojected onto other people as judgment. So not only are we failing to control ourselves, so we try to like judge others, control others, come alongside of others and be like, we're all going to do the same thing I'm doing. Beginning of Galatians 5, before Paul even gets to the fruit, he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our attempts at management, our attempts at control, they do not lead to freedom. They lead to shame and judgment. The good news of the story of Jesus is that he has set us free for freedom, and invited us, if you were here last week, to carry his yoke, which is light and easy and gives you rest. This is why self-control as surrender is such good news, because it reframes not only how we see our relationship with God, but it also reframes how we think about ourselves and our own following of Jesus. Self-control stops being about perfection and it becomes about practice and participation. So we said at the beginning, we are relearning something. We're relearning life in the Spirit, what it means to be the people of Jesus, what it means to be defined by love, deeply connected to our Father, deeply connected to one another. Those things take time to learn, 
And self-control is about practicing the way of love, participating in the healing that Jesus is doing, not perfecting something, practicing something. This is the language that Peter uses in verse 10. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Here he says, practice. Verse 5, he says, supplement. And I actually really like the idea that he uses the word fall. Because it kind of, it makes me think of strength training. Like if you've just gone through something life-altering and physically altering, then you are practicing something in order to gain strength to do this as like your regular part of life. But you're practicing because you have to strengthen your muscles. You have to relearn the way of God. You have to gain an imagination for the kingdom the way that Jesus is. Like all of these things are taking time and getting worked out and unfolded in our lives that we practice in order to understand how to take steps with the Spirit. It's like the, the rails you use in physical therapy. You're just holding on to something as you gain strength. We practice. In fact, that's what we do when we gather here on a Sunday. We practice. It's the purpose of this moment. You know the story of Jesus. Why do you rehear it? Oh, to practice. Because again, we have long habituated a different imagination for how the thing is supposed to work. So we need to rehear the gospel to know that Christ loves us, pursues us, has called us into a radically different way of life. We've come to the table so many times. Why do we come again? Because our muscles do not have a memory of reception and welcome. They have one of rejection and exclusion. And so we practice again and again being received to the table so that we might leave this place and know that we are welcome and that we might be welcoming. Why do we sing the songs? Why do we pray with the people? Not because the performance is important, but because if we don't practice it, we don't have the strength to keep in step with the Spirit when we leave this place. This is like a physical therapy room. We are practicing the way of the Spirit with one another so that as we leave this place, we might have the practices to continue living and practicing and participating in the healing that Jesus is doing. And as that is true of us, that's true of others. Right? As we surrender our own lives to God, here's maybe the hardest part. We also have to surrender others to God. We have to release the people around us from our attempts at managing and controlling them. We have to release them from our judgment and false expectations of shame. And we have to release ourselves from the weight that we tend to put on ourselves in the name of others. And just like in our own life, we have to trust that God is the one that heals, that God is the one that restores, that God is the one who is currently at work in them. And then our role begins to change. What is self-control and practice in our own life look like. We're not here to control people or outcomes, but we are instead invited to participate 
in what God is doing in and with them. We get to practice with them. Paul, at the end of his letter to the Galatians, so he's written about the fruit, he's written about freedom. One of the last things he decides to say is Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Oh, it's love. Practice love with one another. Bear one another's burdens because relearning the way of Jesus is hard. Right? It denies so much of the logic of our world and our culture and even our own life. And so we need one another to relearn the way of Jesus. Our muscles are weak. Our imagination is small. So we need support. We need help. We need someone to carry our burdens as we carry others' burdens. We need them to come alongside of us. The people of Jesus are not just a, a fun, shiny charm that we get to wear on a bracelet. It's a weird metaphor. They are necessary for survival. If we want to navigate the waters of our life, if we want to live into healing, we need the people of Jesus. We are called to be the people of Jesus because we are needed to come alongside of each other, to carry each other's burdens. So instead of control, we practice the practices with. Instead of management or manipulation, we practice the practices with. So we practice love. If you're here week one, we talked about what love is, and then one of the practices of love that Heather gave us is prayer. Oh, we pray together in a way that is self-sacrificial, in a way that is listening, in a way that is submitted, in a way that is attuned. We practice joy, which is the trust in Jesus' work practice with one another. We practice patience, the giving of space and time. We practice kindness, the extension of ourselves and the reception of others. And on and on and on. And in that way, there's a back and forth of the practices. Is I practice and you practice and you lean and I lean. And together we walk in step with the Spirit. All the while knowing that we don't get to control the outcomes. We don't get to control others. We don't even get to control how our body responds. But deeply trusting that God is working something out in us and in others. So our job is to surrender and practice. Surrender and participate. Paul and Romans 12 says that this action of surrender, that's worship. This thing that we're doing, this practice of giving ourselves up, of trying to practice the way of Jesus, oh, that's, that's worship. That's what a life of worship looks like. In Romans 12, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies, this thing that you can't always control, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, that is your spiritual act of worship. See, everything in us wants to manage our problems. The world says, suppress it for the sake of your future. You can control, you can be in charge of it. But God is inviting us to surrender. That's worship. That's what it means to be a follower of him. That's what it means to align our lives with him, is to surrender ourselves to him, to offer our bodies to him. 
But if we're honest, should be. It's hard. I think it's hard for me specifically because it is genuinely frightening. I guess think about my own life. I have invested a lot into my ability to control. I've invested a lot into my ability to manage, to produce the outcomes that I want. And to surrender would be to give that away. To give away the way I mitigate and manage my fear. And I don't know always how to do that. Or I think even maybe the bigger question for me is, am I safe to do that? So as I was reflecting on that, I found it interesting that today is what is known as Christ Our King Sunday. Christ Our King Sunday is in the church calendar, technically the last Sunday of the year for the church. Next week we begin Advent, which is the beginning of the church calendar. But the end of it, Christ our King, it looks to this moment that Nate read in our call to worship. It looks to this moment when he who sits on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. So the culmination and consummation of Christ's kingdom. We point to that moment. It's like that's the actual end of the story. Christ our King. But it's important to ask, like, as we think about that moment, like, you can never think about Jesus' kingship without thinking about how Jesus establishes his kingship, how he secures his victory. And even secure is kind of the wrong word, because if we look at the story, Jesus does it through surrender. He offered up his body as a living sacrifice, so that in and through him, you and I might experience healing. We've read this passage a lot, but it's Philippians 2, verse 6, Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be controlled, a thing to be managed, an outcome that he should oversee. Instead, he surrendered it. He gave up. Released that. And in his releasing of control and his surrendering and his submitting to the way of the Father, But we get to know that it is safe to surrender our bodies to the one who surrendered his for ours. That's what we practice as we come to this table. The reception of his body and the giving of our own. Practice welcome. We practice receiving. Practice walking in step with the Spirit. And in a moment, we'll come here, but right as we do, I just want to put up a few things on the screen to meditate on as you come here. This is just the first three steps of the 12 steps. As you come to the table, would you just spend a second here, asking these questions, thinking about these things? Can you admit that you're powerless? 
that you cannot manage, that you cannot control, that you cannot, as much as you work to, change or force or manipulate the outcome. That you can't even with your body, the world, the people around you. These things are actually uncontrollable, especially the places we most want to control. So can you admit that you are powerless? Second, do you believe that God wants to heal you and is at work to do that? Can you believe that God is at work healing you, wanting to healing you, wanting to receive you at his table? Right? Fear and shame are powerful bullies that keep us from receiving and seeing the kindness of Jesus. And so today, if that's the question you wrestle most with, would you, would you look to the story of Christ our King Sunday, the king who gave everything in himself so that you might know you are welcomed, so that you might have a space at his table? Would you receive the extension of himself to you, his kindness towards you? Would you look to the table that is laid before you? Would you even ask for help to know that? I know that's hard, but there would be people over here who would love to pray with you. If that's the question that you most wrestle with, would you go and pray with someone? Next, where do you need to surrender to Jesus to experience healing? And we obviously think about that in kind of a big way. Like when we decide to do this Jesus thing, we're like, oh yeah, we did do that. But healing and recovery is a lifetime process. Christ our King Sunday points to the, the total healing of all things, but we do not live in the total healing of all things. We live in the strange tension in the middle of that where we are experiencing the healing work of Jesus and holding on to the hope of Jesus' healing work, but knowing that its completion is still to come. And so where now, here, do you need to surrender to Jesus to experience healing? What are the spaces, the places, the relationships, the wounds, the sins, the, the different moments in your life that I... I that I continue to think about, I continue to grip on and hold with all of my might, where are those places that you need to surrender? And then finally, this question is maybe unfair, but I just want you to take it with you, which is how will you practice healing this week? So you have this moment here, come to the table, we hear the word, we sing the songs, we go to prayer. These are all moments to teach us what it looks like to live into healing long-term. So, just as you leave this place, would you leave with that question? How am I going to practice healing this week? How am I going to participate in the way of Jesus this week? And before you even go, there's three ways that you could do that here today. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about the table. But we also have baptisms planned today. So we have two baptisms that will happen after the sermon the baptism is one of the ways we practice surrendering. We practice giving our lives to Jesus and saying, I actually want to, I want to live into a new way. And so if you would like to be baptized, that's all you have to do is say, I would like to continue to surrender my life to Jesus. We have a change of clothes in the back. We have towels here for you. You don't have to be prepared. You don't have to take a class. I will be standing at the back 
for the first two songs until we start baptisms, you can just sync up with me. You can find Heather wherever she's wandering. She'll be like, she'll be somewhere in here. One of us would love to connect with you. But no matter what it is, no matter how it is that you want to practice, would you come to the table? And again and again, would you surrender to Jesus? Would you receive his work of healing? And would you begin to relearn what it looks like to live in step with the Spirit? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're with us that you're here presently moving and shaping and changing and forming us into your people. So as we experience the rest of this service, would we experience you? Would you help us surrender? Help us receive you? And help us practice. In your holy name we pray. Amen.